Welcome to the New Books Network. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Cattell. It's Saturday, April 22nd, 2017, and scientists are outraged. So they are marching. The gathering has just begun, Christy. Look, this is going to be part sort of science conference, part rock concert, part protest, and part huge March for Science. This is the March for Science. There are over 500 protests across the world, with over 1 million people attending. The largest protests are in the United States. In New York City, thousands march past the Trump Tower. Protesters are upset about Trump's cuts to science funding and his muzzling of government scientists. So they hold signs condemning alternative facts and other right-wing lies about science. Thank you. We grew up during the 60s when science mattered, when science made this country great. It ended with the landing on the moon, and that all happened because an American president inspired this nation, right? John F. Kennedy promised this nation that by the end of the 60s, we'd land on the moon. Now, almost 50 years later, we have an American president disparaging the facts, denigrating science, and we're here to tell him that science matters. Their demand is a nonpartisan science. They want scientific expertise to have a greater say in government decision-making. Because I really feel very strongly that we should keep supporting science for the sake of knowledge and also for the sake of informed uh, policy making. Science to me is a way to know what the right path is, pretty much for anything, whether, you know, what direction to take, how to... The March for Science offered a liberal vision of science. Science good, anti-science Republicans bad. That's the message that many of these scientists conveyed on that day in April 2017. But there were some scientific dissenters who didn't love the march. And I don't just mean right-wingers, I mean left-wing scientists. There are some scientists who have a much, much more radical vision of what science is. Many of them have joined a group called Science for the People. Science for the People thinks that there is a rot at the heart of science, because science often, if not always, serves power. Their work might do a lot of good things, but it also serves capitalism, colonialism, and empire. So science isn't inherently good. That means it's not enough to march to defend science. You've got to actually change science. And so what is the message? That, that people, should, uh, people should be wary. People should not trust experts. This is Charlie Swartz, a University of Berkeley physicist and one of the founders of Science for the People. People should not trust great scientists, uh, particularly when they're involved working for powerful institutions, that their work is political. Yes. That by that association, they take on a political cloak, that they, they must be looked at, and their advice must be looked at political way, even though they claim to be just doing technical advice. When his career began in the early 1960s, he was thoroughly part of the scientific establishment, and his scientific work would help to develop weapons that were meant to crush the Viet Cong. But by the 1970s, Charlie Swartz would turn on the scientific establishment. Producer Mark Apollonio brings us the story of Charlie's transformation. Charlie's audio in the story comes from a long, nearly three-hour interview he did back in 1987 with the American Institute of Physics, kind of an oral history of his career up to that point. The guy interviewing him, you'll hear him pipe up from time to time, is historian of science Finn Azarud. 1931 in Brooklyn, New York. Yes. My parents were both uh, Jewish immigrants from around the turn of the century. My father actually born 
in uh, Russia. And, uh, Charlie grew up in New York City. His family moved to Connecticut when he was a kid. His dad's photography equipment business provided a comfortable life for the family. All along, Charlie says, his own passion for science was a constant. His parents supported that passion, and when it came time for college, he landed a spot at MIT where he did all his studies, eventually beginning a PhD in physics. And then fell in with uh, Gerald Zacharias's group doing some interesting experiments on uh, uh, magnetic octopole moments in atomic hyperfine structure, and so I became sort of their theorist, and my thesis developed out of that. Magnetic octopole moments in atomic hyperfine structure. I don't know what it means. I emailed Charlie, but his clarification wasn't much clearer. Point is, he was doing some complex physics. He gets his PhD in 1954. It's the midst of the McCarthy era. At the time, politics was far from his mind. But he remembers the way Robert J. Oppenheimer was treated. That's the guy who led the development of the atomic bomb. But Oppenheimer was extremely conflicted about it, which led to a McCarthyist hearing. Was Oppenheimer a communist? At the 1954 hearing, a colleague of Oppenheimer's, Robert Teller, also testified. Teller is famous for helping develop the hydrogen bomb. But Teller testified against his old colleague. He made mention of, and it was clear to me that, uh, you know, Oppenheimer was the angel and Teller was the devil. Yeah. And I heard that and took that to be true, but had no deeper understanding and no interest yeah. in what was going on. No, if I had an opinion, it was, it was a liberal opinion. An agreement with yeah. uh, an agreement, but but based on, on no understanding, no thought, no no analysis, just no desire to be involved. It just w was not important. For Charlie, what was important was science. In fact, he was so caught up in the world of physics, he later recalled the somewhat cringy way he tried to embody that world by mimicking a certain attribute of his European mentor. I recall with Weisskopf as my supervisor, I found that at a certain point I was affecting a Germanic accent. <laughs> as a you know, really absurd uh, manifestation of, of that attitude. But his approach pays off. Not long after his PhD, he's hired at Stanford. And he keeps up the show. Be smart, look smart, impress the people around you. My attitude toward teaching throughout that time was, uh, well, I go in the classroom to show all these graduate students uh, how smart I am. And... <laughs> and, uh, and, and, of course, that attitude is... It's what everybody else knows and believes and operates on, and that's what the reward system is built on. Yes. In spite of the lip service given to teaching. Several years later, in 1962, he's offered a tantalizing gig just across the San Francisco Bay at the University of Berkeley. Nineteen sixty-two. It's a big year for Charlie. He gets a job, he gets tenure, all in the same year. And that summer, he also gets the opportunity to work at the Institute for Defense Analysis, or IDA, a kind of think tank that was advising the US government on security matters. Within the IDA, he's connected to a secretive research branch known as the Jason Group. Part of what they do is develop high-tech weaponry and warfare tactics. There was a sense of glamour attached to it. I'd have to get a security clearance, I'd go, go to Washington and get paid, and, uh, uh, and then have a bunch of briefings and uh, courage to work on some problem or other, and the headiness of, wow, you know, now we're really getting into it. So the young Charlie Schwartz is helping the U.S. war effort in Vietnam. He calls this six-week summer experience Junior Jason. So it talks about hydrogen bombs and uh, security systems and technological developments and, uh, you know, discussions of uh, outstanding problems that were of interest to the national defense. And, of course, when, when a problem was presented of things like um, better infrared detectors, uh, you know, we understood what that was for, how, how to find uh, bad people in the jungle at night and kill them. Not, not, not that uh, that bothered me. Well, sort of. I mean, you know, I, I was, I had PC feelings, you know, so, you know, I say, no, that's not nice, but no depth to it. Charlie's living the dream. A young hotshot physicist at a top university being groomed to become a scientific advisor for the country's most high-profile policy, the war in Vietnam. But after a few years, his career momentum steadily growing, a couple of events happen that shake things up. 
first couldn't seem any more innocuous. He's at a party in 1965, talking to someone, to the best of his recollection, a woman connected to one of the university's art departments. They're talking about the war in Vietnam, and she's against it. And I recall my response, which was, um, it's better that we have small wars like that than that we have a nuclear war. And she, she just thought that was a terrible thing. She was aghast that I could say such a thing. But I felt very smug and very well-informed. And when I look at, back at that statement, I, you know, I find that's a disgusting thing to have said. Charlie wasn't sure he liked what he was becoming. Why was he such a smart ass? That's the residue of my summer in Washington, mm -hmm. where I had again picked up this, I understand the world. I've been to Washington. I've heard from the people who know. This is what it's really all about. Over the next year, his self-doubt only grew. And in 1966, something happened which forced him to totally reevaluate what he'd become. His younger brother died in a plane crash. I think that, uh, you know, just in a fundamental emotional way, had me saying things to myself like, well, Charlie, there's death, and uh, what's the meaning of life? And uh, maybe you want to think about that again. And uh, so that provided a you know, a deep psychological, emotional opening in which new things came up and, and uh... Yeah, was it something in your, in your brother's life that you responded to? Uh, I don't know. Conceivably some guilt. I was his mm. older brother, when yeah. we were little kids, I would, you know, beat up on him. Yeah. Yeah. Academically, I shone, he didn't. Mm. So that's conceivably there. Um, his life was, I think, generally a rather unhappy. Yes, yes. But there was no mission but, that you um, had seen in his life that you... No, 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 no. I think the interpretation was thoroughly personal. Hmm. This, my brother is dead. <laughs> I cry over that. But then I think about my own death. And then I think about my own life. And I think it was just that, which, which is so obvious yes. and so real, but uh, takes an external shock yeah. to, to make you look at it in, in a in a truthful way. Yes. You know, I'm then beginning to recognize how much of the former construction of my life as a physicist has been so artificial and unreal. Yes. I, I, I wouldn't say I acknowledged that at the time, but that's, that's what was happening. I yes, think. Yes. It was a psychological opening, something that made Charlie rethink the kind of scientist and the kind of person he was. Then while he's going through this reflection, he comes across some anti-war activists at the university who make the case that US citizens should withhold their taxes in opposition to the war. So I looked into that, thought about that, said, okay, I'm going to do that. Yes. So, uh, you know, that part of my taxes that I owed, I didn't pay. I wrote a letter to President Johnson. And, uh, and then I started telling my family and friends about that. And, and then I found, you know, you get a nice reaction. He gets involved with a faculty peace group. Then slowly but surely, he starts turning a critical lens on himself and his own scientific discipline. And then I started acknowledging them and saying, okay, so uh, if I'm serious about this, there's some responsibilities that I have as a physicist within physicists physics to start doing things. Yes. And so I started turning my efforts in that direction. Next, he writes a letter to the editor of Physics Today, a magazine put out by the American Institute of Physics. Uh, which was directly an attempt to say, Hey, fellow physicists, there's this war in Vietnam. I think it affects us. I think we're a part of it in a significant way. Let's talk about it. But the editor says the letter won't be published. When I understood what it was, I mean, this is direct political censorship. And my reaction then, and if you will, my continued characteristic reaction is, is, is to fight back. Charlie proposes an amendment to the physics organization's constitution. He wants the group to host discussions about controversial political issues, issues like the war in Vietnam. He wants physicists to consider how these things affect their profession. To bring the amendment forward, Charlie goes out and gets 300 signatures from other members. And then it goes to a debate. Uh, I recall very early in this debate on, can I have this letter on Vietnam in physics today? One of the things I held up as a counterexample was a, a photograph published in, in Physics Today at that very same time. That was a picture at the APS annual meeting in Washington of APS President Charles Towns introducing a surprise speaker, President Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, to me, this was just an explicit 
political alignment. President Johnson was having a tough time those days because of the anti-war protests, and, and he managed to get uh, an invitation to appear before this prestigious group of physicists, and he was happy to take the invitation to, you know, to me this is a legitimization of his Vietnam War policies by being invited and accepted in an APS meeting, and here's the APS playing this ex explicit political role. Here's Charlie Towns, the leader who probably brokered that affair, and this is a political sellout for the APS, and here it is in the magazine. I say, well, that's, that's political, let's argue about it. But the vote, it fails. Probably a large component of the negative vote is the kinds of fear that uh, physicists know which side the bread is buttered on. They know it's heavily integrated with controversial things, big business, the Pentagon, and so on. And even those who, who have, let's say, liberal views on these things understand they're all part of that arrangement. And you don't rock the boat. You don't do things that might offend the powers that be. So you claim to be neutral and apolitical and uh, resist any, any attempts that might uh, put you in a position where you might encourage the disfavor of important people, which means those who have the money to give out. This whole episode catalyzes Charlie. He starts taking part in campus protests, winds up getting arrested a few times. In the late 60s, Charlie's colleague, Marty Pearl, suggests they put together an organization that would serve as a kind of critical caucus of physicists, a forum where scientists could explore how their work was being used in destructive ways. They call it Scientists for Social and Political Action, or CESPA. In 1969, CESPA has its first big meeting. About 200 people show up. And I remember Marty Pearl giving the first speech in which he made it very clear that this was not going to be a radical organization. And then I gave the second speech in which I said, in my opinion, this was going to be a radical organization. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and, you know, fine, just let that ambiguity <laughs> sit out there. It was designed as, as very much an unorganized organization, encouraging local activity and organization and initiative. Uh, Marty undertook to keep a newsletter going for, for a while. So, so, so the organization came into existence. Not long after, some students at Harvard join up and take on the effort of keeping that newsletter going. In that newsletter, it's the first incarnation of the magazine, Science for the People. I think the first issue of the magazine came out and it had this large red fist on the cover. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's when Marty Pearl told me uh, he doesn't want anything more to do with this organization. <laughs> so so there, there, was, there was a definite cleavage, yeah. or a splitting away, from, if you wish, liberals from radicals. The Liberals had their own new organization to rally around. Because just around the time CESPA was formed, another new, less radical organization emerged. The Union of Concerned Scientists. An organization that was more about defending science and pushing for evidence-based policy. It was less critical of the scientific establishment. And perhaps because of that, it got more support and funding. And today it remains a well-established nonprofit. While Science for the People, it wasn't like that. A lot of its early members were Marxists. I was perfectly happy to have this be a very explicitly radical organization. I felt that was important. Not that you know, I had any deep appreciation of all the things that meant. And there are certainly elements within it who had various doctrinaire lines of one or another form of Marxism. I, and I was neither excited nor bothered by all those things. I was for a very, very incisive analysis, very sharp criticism, very potent actions, and very open. Yes. So I felt all those things were very, very healthy. CESPA and its newsletter, now rolling along, Charlie's main focus becomes an issue he was once close to, the Jason Project from the Institute for Defense Analysis. A decade earlier, Charlie was doing research for Jason, supporting the war in Vietnam. Now he's helping put together a highly critical booklet called Science Against the People. It's 44 pages, looks a little like what I'd call a zine today. It goes in depth about U.S. efforts to develop and deploy automated intelligence and weapons technology. It also describes the involvement of physicists Charlie worked with closely in the not-so-distant past. Now, within Jason were such people who, whom I felt uh, could be, and perhaps need to be identified as war criminals. Uh, there are others uh, about whom I felt much less severely, some very good personal friends, but with whom uh, there was you know, still personal warmth, but serious political 
argument, then, you know, I really wanted these people to get out. Now, as some of the Jasons have said, you don't get a person to get out by condemning them publicly as a war criminal. I understand that. Nevertheless, you know, that excess, it seemed to me, you know, politically, that this group needs to be uh, exposed. I'm sure those guys um, suffered. I mean, the, the decent people would have to suffer under the conflicts that, that were there. And uh, this is, is, not, is not a nice position. And, uh, you know, I think there are some who have reported to acknowledge that, that they did quit somewhat as a result of this, but at a later time, so, you know, on their own time, they, they choose oh, yeah. to quit or just drop out quietly. Uh, that's that's fine. Pride didn't I mean, allow them to quit immediately. Well, that, that, that's okay. I mean, I <laughs> that's all right. Mm -hmm. So you would think that all in all, that uh, specific attack on Jason was um, uh, well had had a net positive effect. Oh, very very much so. Mm. Yeah, I think it was a very worthwhile. Yeah. Yes. 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 Now you know, but what what does that really mean? Uh, Jason continued and continues mm -hmm. to do its work, yes. uh, largely unchanged. Uh, did I imagine that this was going to destroy Jason? I hope I didn't imagine that. Mm -hmm. That's not to be expected. So really the purpose of this is not to change the Jason's eyes, but to teach a larger public, including other people in science as well, as about, about what this institution, yes. how science is involved with the government. The Jason Advisor Group did indeed survive the Science Against the People effort. As of today, the secretive group is still in operation, but it seems somewhat on life support, bouncing from contract to contract. The organization that runs Jason, the Institute for Defense Analysis, is still alive and well. Charlie's awakening isn't just political, it's pedagogical too. Back in the classroom, he's not all about showing off in front of grad students anymore. He's now actually learning from them. My models, my teachers and all this were activist students. Yes. Somewhat activist faculty, but really more so the activist yes. students. Yes, yes. In class, one of Charlie's students makes the point that, much like doctors, scientists should have a kind of Hippocratic oath of their own. Charlie liked it. I announced that I was going to require any student of mine in a class or private research to subscribe to a very, very, very modest form of a Hippocratic oath yes. that I felt was necessary for me to transmit my knowledge that they would say, yes, I will think about how I use it. I'll try to be socially responsible. Uh, this uh, created uh, enormous conflict on the campus. Uh, my faculty was outraged by it. People were not speaking to me for a long period of time. I felt really offended by what I had done. For Berkeley, it was a step too far. The school's chancellor gave Charlie a formal reprimand. They said Charlie's oath violated the academic freedom of his students. This was, uh, you know, ideologically, it's the conflict between academic freedom and social responsibility. Yeah. Right? And, and academics do not like to imagine that there are boundaries to academic freedom, so they, they cannot deal with these questions. Charlie's colleagues at Berkeley don't like what he's becoming. They tell him to cut out this political stuff, but he won't. He keeps finding new ways to organize against the scientific establishment. Like in 1970, he puts together a radical lecture series. His lab director doesn't like it, tells him to stop, but Charlie won't. So he gets kicked out of the lab. And this has major consequences for his career. Mostly since then, I've had no uh, summer salary, no external source of research funds, which means I have been in, in a condition in which uh, I have had uh, no physics students doing research work for me. Without research funds, his output dropped significantly, and his salary, which would normally be boosted by raises from time to time, it stalls. I remember even a letter coming back from the dean saying, uh, we feel confident that if Professor Schwartz returns to doing the sort of physics he used to do, that he will be able to get more, more merit increases, which I read as, as a direct statement to cut out uh, the political work, Schwartz, and we'll be kind to you again. <laughs> That's the way it is, and uh, I, you know, it, it's really absurd for me to complain about that because I have this extraordinary uh, thing called tenure, yeah. which lets me do things that most people yeah. in the real world of employment could not economically survive at yes. doing. Yes. So um, I've, I've got absolutely nothing yeah. real to gripe about. Charlie stuck with his radical science activism. 
And by the late 80s, he turned his back on teaching his own science. So I've, uh, I've taken the extraordinary uh, step recently of concluding that uh, as a teacher of basic physics course, I uh, was a very significant contributor to the military programs of this country by training the people who will be building the weapons and that I should stop doing that. So I have recently taken the position that uh, given the state of the world, I'm no longer willing to teach most of the regular physics courses, and at least temporarily, the department chairman has agreed to assign me to a few courses that are for biology majors or liberal arts majors. And I also teach a course on science and politics and a course on the nuclear arms race. Mm -hmm. But that's a more of a negative uh, tactic. It, it's, it's negative and it's personal. Mm. Um, it follows after the complete failure of, of my approach to organize all the physicists in the world to go on strike against the arms race. I have taught uh, thousands of people basic science, and I'm sure many of them are building the weapons that I don't want to be built. So I just cannot deny my part in that role, and I have a choice. When a student of physics looks for a job, they have to choose whether they work for Lockheed or, I won't say drive a taxi cab, there may be some intermediates, though not too many. The truth is, I know which way the world is going. I know where the jobs are, and uh, and I see what I am contributing to. So if I'm social responsibility, I have a choice to make. Yes. Are you? That, that's very harsh, but that's the reality. So I've made that choice. And the most frustrating thing about that is I can't get my colleagues to talk about it. So the fact that most academics with tenure are content to be conformists is such a pathetic waste. Charlie, he's now in his early 90s. The organization he helped create, Science for the People, it still exists. It ran for about two decades after he helped get it going, then shut down for nearly three decades, but then lo and behold, about eight years ago, it was revived. So I went to find a young Science for the People member, and I found Jack. Jack sadly facing some of the same things Charlie Schwartz faced more than half a century ago. We're only using Jack's first name because they're concerned their activism puts their future job prospects at risk. Unlike Charlie, Jack doesn't yet have tenure. In fact, Jack just completed their undergrad in 2021. They're studying biomathematics and computational science at a US college. Jack's undergrad research was on suicidology and they worked in one of the top suicide prevention research centers in the country. Um, so in suicidology, there's sort of three categories. There's suicidal ideations, non-fatal suicide attempts, and then fatal suicide attempts. During undergrad, Jack developed a hypothesis that considered the writings of people at risk of suicide, say their blog posts or interviews. Jack's thinking was that there might be incredibly subtle differences in the writings of people who are just thinking about suicide and those who might actually try it. People, when they spoke about suicide, for example, as like the subject being the person, the object being suicide, were there, you know, was it closer in words if it was predictive of a fatal suicide attempt? So this is After undergrad, Jack got hired at a machine learning startup. Their initial task was to try and secure grants that would allow research into how to use AI for the public good. One day while working on a grant proposal, Jack's called into a meeting with the CEO who wants to talk about Jack's hypothesis on language and suicide risk. And then the CEO says, uh, oh, you know, how can we profit off of this? And then I was kind of just like mortified. And it was just so bizarre that we were kind of having this conversation about how to figure out a way to use our nonprofit sector to train the algorithm, but then end up using the actual like trained algorithm in the for-profit sector. Um, and then this uh, professional grant writer is like, oh yeah, the pharmaceutical industry does it all the time. They set up these nonprofits and then do all the research through federal grant money. And then once the, before the research becomes viable, they sell it to the for-profit company. Jack was so jarred by this, they eventually left the company and started some real soul searching about their place in the world as a scientist. That kind of definitely drove me to um, think about like, is there any kind of science that is anti-capitalist? Or is there any kind of machine learning tech company that is not trying to capitalize? And so I actually started looking up like ethical tech jobs, just kind of like anti-capitalist scientists. Um, and that's actually how I found science for the people, like Googling anti-capitalist science. <laughs> and so, uh, and so I, I started with science for the people. I can't remember what year it was. I guess it's probably like about two years ago. Just like Charlie Schwartz in the 1960s, Jax's scientists and tech workers usually ignore how their knowledge is applied in the real world. 
So Jack is working with Science for the People to build greater awareness in tech unions. They say tech workers often think of unions only as means for improved wages, but Jack says they want their tech peers to see the potential of unions for solidarity movements against militarism and imperialism. These days, Jack is working with unions to bring scientists and tech workers on board for an international movement against something called Project Nimbus. Project Nimbus is a contract around machine learning and AI signed between the Israeli government, the Israeli military, Google, and Amazon. Opponents of the project, including over 1,000 Google and Amazon workers, say the $1.2 billion deal could be used to further surveil Palestinians, and they say they fear it could be used as a tool of oppression. Like Charlie, Jack says the world of science and tech is in many ways engineered to keep its workers willfully blind to the consequences of their own work. You know, as somebody who studied biomathematics, somebody who was in the math department and, and, you know, in STEM programs, you never have to learn about, like, world affairs. Um, And you never have to, like, learn about, uh, you know, human rights events or anything like that. And I just felt so ignorant. And I was kind of amazed that I'd been so, like, oblivious to what was happening in Palestine. Jack says the work of groups like Science for the People is as relevant today as when Charlie Schwartz helped get it going half a century ago. The issues they face don't go away. People in power need technical advice, and they will find scientists who will work for them. Now, I just want to make sure everyone knows that the scientist working for a political leader is is a political person, a political animal, and that their claims of scientific, scientific objectivity, neutrality, and balance should not be taken at face value. I mean, this is not something one solves. This is a perpetual problem, which I think is, is an enormous problem. It may be one of the fundamental problems of, of contemporary civilization in terms of the relation between um, power, decision-making, and science and technology. And uh, where does democracy survive in, in that? In getting back to Charlie, I touched base with him recently in preparation for this episode. He's pretty thrilled Science for the People is back up and running and that people like Jack are involved. I feel wonderful about that. I'm so happy to see it rejuvenated. And the younger people have their own ways of framing these issues, orienting their activities, and I think that's just terrific. Charlie's now 91 years old. He retired back in 1993. Sadly, his wife passed away. But he keeps busy. In fact, he's still actually publishing scientific papers on obscure matters of physics. There might be things that always travel faster than speed of light. and They were given the name of tachyons. And I've actually developed a, a large theory of that, and it seems I find it rather interesting. Maybe it actually explains... When we spoke, I asked him, looking back all those years, how does he feel about his activism now and the impact it had on his life and career? Oh, it's a rich part of my life. I'm very happy to have had the opportunities and to taken some chances. I feel extremely good about that. And uh, frankly, that's, that's the nicest thing anyone can say about their life, that it's been rewarding on their own terms. That was Charlie Schwartz and Jack. That piece was produced by Mark Apollonio. Thanks, Mark. Thanks also to the Niels Bohr Library and Archives at the American Institute of Physics. They kindly let us use their archival audio. After the break, we'll look at how Science for the People was revived, and we'll discuss how the organization is different today. Hello, dear New Books Network listeners. As you see, Darts and Letters is syndicated on the network. So if you're finding us for the first time, consider subscribing to our main feed. Darts and Letters covers the politics of academia, science, expertise, and intellectual culture. If you like this episode, you will surely like our other episodes. You can find them all at dartsandletters.ca. Subscribe today and never miss an episode. Science for the People petered off in the 1980s. They eventually disbanded in 1989. But today the group is back. This is partly due to the work of Sigurd Schmalzer. 
Sigurd is a historian of science who put together this conference in 2014. The conference brought back a lot of the old-timers and introduced a lot of young scientists to Science for the People. This led the group to come back together. In 2017, she also co-edited a book that sampled a lot of the writings from their archives. The book is called Science for the People, Documents from America's Movement of Radical Scientists. I called Sigurd to ask her why she thinks the group came back, but also how Science for the People is different today. And how can they do this kind of work in these political times? With the right-wing attacks on science, how can you be a radical critic of science? Full disclosure, Sigrid is an editorial advisor for a series of episodes we're making on the relationship between activism and academia. This episode is part of that series. We don't usually interview the people who are part of our advisory boards because we don't want to seem like we're doing promo for our people. But the truth is, I've known about this book for a while now, from before our series came together. So I made an exception. I read your book a few years ago, and I was so excited to discover science for the people because, you know, I had studied sort of history and philosophy of science a bit through uh, grad school and into my PhD in science and technology studies. And it's something one might think you'd find in departments that are essentially you know, critical studies of science, and yet I never found it. And I don't think my experience is unique because you never found it till later in your career. I'm curious just to get us kind of going, what was it like for you when you first uh, discovered Science for the People and how did you first discover them? It's kind of funny because, yeah, I, in some ways, I feel like I was searching for science for the people for a long time. And the way I discovered it was very roundabout. My background is in um, history of science in socialist China. But I had this book that was written by a delegation of uh, members of science for the people who had traveled to the People's Republic of China in 1973 and came back and wrote this book called China, Science Walks on Two Legs. It was just this very, very positive account of science as practiced in socialist China. And then um, when I was getting ready to have my first baby, I couldn't go to China for a couple of years to do field work. And I decided I needed a project that could keep me busy while I was more local. And so I started looking up these people, in particular, Vinton Thompson, and I interviewed him a bunch of times. And then actually it was Vinton who said, you should really get us together again. You know, we're, we're getting old. We should have a, a little reunion. Maybe you could bring us together. And I was originally thinking it was going to be a dozen people sitting around a table eating sandwiches at UMass Amherst, but um, spread the word. And before we knew it, it was clear it was going to be big. And we had two and a half days of panels. So many people came. It was about 200 people came. And that was in, in 2014 that we had the conference and then it, the, the movement started again. So yeah, it's, it's, I think it's many people have kind of discovered the organization, uh, you know, in recent years and the, the fire has been relit. So the, the group started in the late 60s, early 70s and just disappeared basically in 1989. This period, this whole period does coincide with a real flourishing of critical science studies literature. And I don't want to make this too much about like disciplinary kind of politics or whatever, but, but I am curious as to why you think the group itself was so kind of unknown, uh, both in academia and outside of it until basically today. I mean, some people have talked about the way the field of science studies kind of lost its way a bit politically when it became very focused on the micro level of how knowledge gets produced, you know, through the kind of everyday actions of people in laboratories or, you know, um, in terms of their writings and the construction of facts at this very micro level and kind of the larger questions of political economy you know, in some cases got lost. I don't know, I, I guess it's a little bit of a puzzle, but why it, it was off the radar, um, I'm not really sure. Maybe it felt dated to people, you know, maybe it felt like just part of this history of the way the way academics used to be, or, you know, the kinds of, of politics that people used to engage in, and that it didn't feel um, as relevant anymore. It may be also, you know, I mean, I think 
one thing that you know has been acknowledged is that despite the very explicit anti-patriarchal and anti-racist politics that the members of the original Science for the People did embrace, they were not necessarily successful in building that um, a political organization that people of color and women felt fully represented by. Science for the People, they're not just left-wingers who are scientists, right? They are, they're not radicals who are also scientists. They are radical scientists. And I think that's important to understand. But, but I want to just hear from you, like, what, what does that mean? Could you talk about sort of those, the two sides of that? You know, I think partly because it was about a collect, much more of a collectivist model and because it was informed by Marxism, right? And so I wouldn't say that all of the members of you know, Science for the People in the beginning were equally steeped in the kind of Marxist texts on science, but some of them really were. And then, you know, I think for a number of the, the women, you know, prominent women, Ruth Hubbard, uh, Rita Arditi, Freda Salzberg, I mean, these are people who were... Um, and then uh, Anne Fausta Sterling also comes to mind. These, you know, these are people who, for whom the question of gender was politically important, and it opened up this huge, you know, intellectual terrain for rethinking the science that they themselves were engaged in. These are scientists who are engaged in science, and they're at the same time participating in the women's movement, and then applying it to the fields and say, say, how is biology constructing the female sex? And how is that shaped by patriarchy? So I want to go to the first, I think this is from the first issue. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Bill Zimmerman, Len Rodinsky, Mel Rothenberg, Bart Myers wrote Towards a Science for the People in the 1972 issue of the booklet. And so just to summarize here, their Marxist critique of science, science develops out of the relations of production, science works to maintain global U.S. hegemony, science works to rationalize the labor process, and they also wanted to reject the distinction within science of the kind of pure versus the applied. Why do the Marxists, uh, why do they reject that distinction? So um, I should say, too, that they actually tried to get that published in Science Magazine, and it was uh, rejected, <laughs> even though the peer reviews came back saying, we hate this, but you should publish it. They still, uh, the editors decided not to. So that, that in and of itself, there's a really interesting history of that particular document. Yeah, so the distinction between pure and applied, I mean, I think that is where so many people who have a kind of more liberal approach, people are much more comfortable, I think, saying, well, science is fine, right? The work that scientists do is just science. It's only the application that's the problem, right? It's only taking that knowledge and deciding whether to use it to kill people or to heal people. That's the, you know, that's the place where, where we should be engaging. And, you know, we need to kind of leave scientists alone to engage in, you know, this this pure research. And even the word pure, right, carries with it all of these implications, all of this, these connotations, right? And, um, you know, it's very telling that that word was ever even used, right? Because it supports this idea that science can be something that's, you know, untainted by anything in society, any kind of politics, any kind of culture. And so in many ways, the concept of purity has had to be one of the you know, first things that the critics tackle, right? To say, no, science is never pure. There's, you know, even that they're calling it pure is just such an obvious tell, right? That, um, that there's an attempt to protect it and elevate it and prevent anybody from really criticizing it. But that in fact, Science is a, you know, it's a human endeavor. It's a social endeavor. And Donna Haraway, you know, famously says, I'm not going to be able to quote it perfectly, but, you know, she says, you know, I don't know what science would look like if we lived in a culture that minimized domination, but I just know from looking at the history of the life sciences that it would have to reflect and reproduce the new world just as the science that we have in our world reflects and reproduces the conditions that it, it's produced in. 
The other thing I think is uh, they're pretty funny. Like their mobilization against the AAAS and their stunts, I suppose you'd say, where they're really calling out the hypocrisies of their fellow scientists. I have one here that I that I quite like, where they present their second annual Dr. Strangelove Award uh, to Edward Teller for his ceaseless efforts to follow in the footsteps of the great Peter Sellers. Dr. Teller, not content to rest on his laurels as father of the H-bomb, has ceaselessly promoted the rapid development of all feasible systems of nuclear destruction. Uh, I'm curious about this. So they, they presented this award to him uh, in person, or mm-hmm. I mean, tell me about <laughs> the kind of uh, the, those those stunts. Yeah, so I mean, this was in the very early years of the movement, and it didn't last that long. That particularly the bigger focus on on direct action. I mean, as with the kind of you know politics more more generally, the those forms of direct action became more marginal fairly soon in the movement. But yeah, in the early years. They were very direct um, and, you know, kind of seizing the mic from leaders in the um, AAAS and uh, directly confronting, you know, um, people who, you know, in the in the leadership politically and and scientifically, you know, because they felt that 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 was the only way to push these institutions and targeting the AAAS. It's like this is the scientific leadership of the the whole profession, right? And if they are content to just have business as usual and to, you know, sit quietly applauding as political leaders who are engaged in, you know, this war are speaking, the members of the original organization in this early years thought there was nothing that they could do except to really boldly confront and, and interrupt those events. How do the scientific powers that be respond uh, as this group develops and and sort of flourishes in this early period? You know, my sense is that the more outrageous the uh, direct action, in some ways, the easier it is to mock and to marginalize, right? And so I think you know, for some people, these were the kind of crazies on the on the fringes, and this was just a kind of, you know, sign of the times that some people were, um, you know, were were being disruptive, but you know, couldn't be taken seriously. You know, and so the, there's always arguments like, you know, are you more effective if you play the game and put on the tie and uh, quietly wait your turn at the microphone and um, raise your question in the within the bounds of expected political discourse? Or are you more effective if you challenge the mode of discourse to begin with and say, you know, everything about this is is messed up and we don't buy into any of this? Despite your optimism and, and mine too, in terms of the kind of opening up of alternative perspectives to thinking about expertise and scientific knowledge, it seems like there aren't a lot of people standing in front of the various engineering labs where the weapons are being made still. Why didn't the kind of civil disobedience of scientists persist? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's heartbreaking when you look at the actual numbers, right? I mean, we just had um, a protest in front of an engineering fair at UMass Amherst, where um, where I work, Uh specifically, you know, um, because of the participation of big military contractors in that fair, had a, you know, relatively small number, maybe a dozen, you know, of us outside it, passing out leaflets, you know, holding signs, you know, had the bullhorn, et cetera. Um, and it felt empowering. It felt good. It was good to be, you know, with comrades. Um, but in terms of the number of people going into the fair, you know, <laughs> and certainly the power imbalance between, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of ragtag bunch of protesters outside and the, you know, the power that is represented by those military contractors, that can be heartbreaking to think about. I mean, part of it, I think, is the change in just the way that military funding has become so embedded that it is virtually impossible for somebody to say they are not going to take it um, and they're going to build their whole career without ever touching military funding. They're going to make that a, um, you know, or for that matter, fossil fuel in the geosciences, right, Um, and in chemistry, or, you know, pick your pharmaceutical funding in the life sciences, right? I wanted to ask you a little bit more about race and gender. And I think the group was 
in, in a lot of ways ahead of its time and mounted some pretty sophisticated critiques against, you know, the biological determinism of the day. But at the same time, women left the movement and it didn't necessarily, you know, it wasn't necessarily that inclusive, I suppose. Maybe what happened there? Anytime we have a, you know, a movement or, and, you know, when we're talking about an organ, like a specific organization here, right, it's not even the broader movement, right? It's a specific organization. And so there are people involved, right? And those people have to come together and have meetings and have their voices heard and also have to decide whether the political dynamics in that organization are the best way for them to be organizing on the things that they care about, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think Science for the People was important for organizing around gender, certainly. I think race was harder in certain ways. I mean, I think in part just because of the makeup of the profession at that point. But, you know, it's a question of, it's like you come to a meeting and you, for you, the, you know, let's say gender, you know, and women in science is the thing that you most want to center in the conversation. And, you know, the meeting is being run by somebody who may or, you know, well-meaning or whatever, but doesn't keep the conversation, you know, going in the direction that is going to allow you to keep centering what you think is important. And you feel that your concerns are being marginalized, that it's being treated as a kind of secondary issue. You're going to take your energy elsewhere eventually, right? We see that time and again. And I guess I um, I feel kind of caught in between that. And, and in, you know, today's movement, I feel caught in between the generations as well on these things, because I do actually see the work of uh, many of these science for the people leaders, including the men, including the white men, as being, you know, sincere in wanting to develop a anti-patriarchal, anti-racist politics. But, you know, it wasn't sufficient. It's not just science for the people. I think it's all of our organizations within these movements that face these kinds of questions. It's tough, you know, you're like remaking the world, right? And remaking the world is hard. The group um, disappears or disbands, I guess, in 1989. Is, is there any particular reason? Is it just, you know, it's just kind of the Reagan era and like the left is on retreat or is there a kind of a, another story in the inside? Well, I mean, the, the actual reason for the disbanding is very boring. I mean, it had to do with an IRS problem. They had not been doing their bookkeeping properly and they owed taxes. But perhaps if the movement had been stronger, they would have been able to raise that money to settle the debt and you know stay incorporated, so to speak, right? It's not that they weren't doing important work or that they didn't have support, but I do think it is indicative of the kind of larger state of the movement that in 89, when confronted with this debt, you know, they, they were not able to raise the funds to pay it. So uh, what was it like to bring uh, the group back together, the, the kind of old timers, but also young people that discovered and, and uh, became interested in the group? It was unbelievably exciting. And I, you know, I mean, I hope I have another thing in my career that's like quite that transformational, but it was a really exciting um, experience. And definitely the intergenerational part was probably the most important and exciting part of all. It shows that even before, you know, the election of Trump and the March for Science, that it was already something that was wanting to happen, right? I mean, the fact that it went so quickly from we're going to have, you know, sandwiches around a table, like a dozen people to 200 people are going to be involved in, we're going to have, you know, a, a dozen different panels and people are going to get hotel rooms and stay over. It does demonstrate that something was wanting to happen there, right? The context was there, the conditions were ripe. So I think that's, people were ready to see the, those connections and to be inspired by that intergenerational um, you know, those intergenerational relationships. That's, that's what I put it down to. 
I mean, one thing that's definitely different now is the kind of continued uh, proletarization of kind of intellectual labor. And so you see this not just with science for the people returning, but kind of burgeoning unionism within graduate students all across uh, the United States and, and elsewhere, um, just recognizing that, that they're workers, right? Which is, which is one of the things that science for the people always stress. I mean, scientists are workers. They work under capitalism and they, they have that kind of one foot in, one foot out. The other thing I wanted to maybe end on is that one thing that is obvious about today's politics is that the critique of science has, I mean, how would you put it, kind of like a, like a right-wing ideological valence. And so it's quite difficult for people like myself and presumably people in Science for the People to figure out how to say there's a rot at the core of our institution and we just sort of mobilize against it while not having that be interpreted as a kind of reactionary anti-science screed, but also not wanting to kind of just re-articulate the liberal kind of understanding of science. So how, how, does, how do people in the movement contend with these particular politics? That is so true. I'm so glad you raised that because that's really at the heart of it, I think, you know, and even we were just having another one of these, we were standing outside the biotech career fair with pamphlets about vaccine apartheid. We wanted people to think about vaccine apartheid and health inequity and the way that the, you know, intellectual property demands of the pharmaceutical companies were getting in the way of, of justice, right, and of access to vaccines for so many people in the global south. But handing out any that's at all about vaccines in front of a biotech fair. And also there happens to be a vaccine clinic right, right next to it in the same building. It was interesting to see how many people, their first instinct was to think that we were anti-vaxxers. And they're like, don't give me that garbage. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. It's like, we're not anti-vaxxers. We're asking for vaccine equity. But that, you know, in the context of today, you're right. It's like people see you're either pro-science or you're this kind of weird right-wing anti-science and the sense that there are a whole different set of questions we need to be asking here about equity, about oppression are harder to raise because of this very polarized sense. And I would say that that is also, however, I mean, to turn that on its head, the election of Trump followed by the March for Science I would say was the major catalyst bringing this movement that a few people were kind of trying to revitalize into fruition because it became clear. It's like, aha, this is the intervention we need to make because it's become so polarized because the people organizing the March for Science seem only to be able to articulate this defending science and very yeah. much thinking in those purity forms, right? Science must be protected from politics. And so it became clearer exactly what we needed to be saying and exactly why we needed to be at the March for Science, you know, in its various locations with banners that said science for the people articulating this different thing don't protect science in this abstract way let's actually continue to criticize science the kinds of science that are oppressive and mobilize for science that is you know in the service of the values that we embrace that was sigurd schmaltzer Sigurd is a historian of science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Her co-edited book is called Science for the People, Documents from America's Movement of Radical Scientists. That's published by the University of Massachusetts Press. That's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Darts and Letters is a production of Cited Media. We are produced by Jay Coburn, Mark Apollonio, Ren Bangert, and myself. Gordon Caddick. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop. This episode was part of a wider series that looks at the relationship between activism and academia. It received funding from the Social Sciences and Research Council of Canada. The scholarly advisors on this project are Professors Leslie Wood at York University 
and Sigrid Schmaltzer at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. This series also receives research support from Sammy McBriar and Susanna Mulvale. Darts and Letters is also supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Thanks for listening. Check back in in two weeks.